Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Oh, hello, it's Thursday, and it's time to welcome you to Waypoints. <laughs> What's deadly class? See, you're the problem. You're why we can't have nice things. Deadly That's Rob class. I deadly class was a sci-fi show starring Benedict Wong, wow. uh, where he is basically the headmaster of, like, crime lord assassin in Hogwarts. And that sounds so it's crappy. Yeah, oh, because it's because it's, it's a sci-fi show, and I most of those just like okay, I see sci-fi and go, that's cool. I'll wait till someone tells me it's actually worth watching. Yeah, it was, it was. It's very like uh, just '80s. Uh, it's got a cool '80s vibe. Uh, it's very anti-Reagan, uh, but yeah, it's just a cool uh, show about assassin school, and also like the it's uh, produced by the Russo brothers. And oh, so, like, the action sequences are genuinely incredible. It, like, builds toward this, uh, like, season finale that they set up this, like, massive, like, assault on a mansion in San Francisco. And it's just, like, 45 minutes of watching them, like, storm this building. And it's amazing. Wow. So, anyway. Shout but it was canceled. To, to Deadly Class. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I think I've got it now. <laughs> oh, we were. This isn't just the podcast now. Okay, fine. Oh, sure. Yeah, go ahead, Rob. It can be the podcast. podcast. I don't know. <laughs> Look, I've been gone for a week. Maybe things are different now. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> oh, hello. It's Thursday, and it's time to welcome you to Waypoints, where the Waypoint staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and entertainment that's been inspiring and provoking us lately. Oh, I've been provoked. <laughs> Gather around the table this Thursday. We've got Patrick. It's not Deadly Class because it was canceled. Wait, is that that bit getting cut? I don't know where we're at it's in the timeline be anymore. In the it's all in, I think. Kato, Kato I knew that. I knew that, Kato. <laughs> Rob is just, he's claiming he's drinking water, but that's just a tall glass of vodka as he tries to get through this. <laughs> We've also got Danielle Riendo. Oh, hello. I'm inspired. Every time I say that now, I'm like, don't say Riendo. Don't, don't, like, <laughs> Frank like, Frankify it. It's fine either way. <laughs> uh, and, of course, you also just heard him there. We got Kato working the boards. Uh, so Patrick, I was. <laughs> he just laughed. So as Kato, as Kato, I don't know. Got picked up. I just want to point out that in response, that Kato just burst into a fit of giggling at being <laughs> just introduced. I just, I don't know if it'll make it on a mic. Just wanted to make sure it was noted in the record. It's beautiful. So I just got back from vacation. 
Excuse me. Sorry. What is vacation. wrong? <laughs> you did like a big like. <gasps> <laughs> And then I just, I, I happen to glance up at the, ah, <gasps> uh, all right. So I just got back from vacation and, uh, Patrick, while I was sort of marooned on an island in Lake Michigan, I saw you tweeting about the 2014 Gareth Edwards, uh, Godzilla, which is a movie that I have a real soft spot for. Uh, but you want to dig into, like, why were you rewatching it? And uh, it looked like you had a different reaction to it watching it now than you remembered uh, from the previous time you saw it. Yeah, so th- there's a new uh, uh, Godzilla film out in the <laughs> MonsterVerse um, comprised of the 2014 Godzilla, the 2016 or 20, 2017 uh, Kong Skull Island. Oh, right, um, right. Uh, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and then will probably be a finale based on the box office of the new one, um, uh, Godzilla vs. Kong. Um, and the 2014 one I was uh, revisiting uh, because when I saw it in the theater, uh, I had such a opposite reaction than most of the people walking out of that. Um, it, it's a movie in which Godzilla is, I, I believe, because people were so annoyed, uh, uh, noted the amount of time that Godzilla is in the film, which is like 11 minutes of, you know, like a two hour and 10 minute movie. Um, and I came out of that movie thinking like it was like the most effective 11 minutes I've like seen to display a monster in a film of that scale, um, for a creature that I'm intimately, uh, aware of, have seen for decades. And it seemed impossible for me to actually show any awe, um, which is usually the case Upon sequels, reboots, reimaginings, if you're old enough to have been a part of it for for decades or for years. Um, And reviewing it um, specifically through that lens of, like, okay, whatever. Throw away all the human characters. It's fine. We can talk about that part. But, like, I was viewing it specifically, like, to try and have a, a, a greater appreciation of, like, what the camera was doing to display the creatures in, in the original Godzilla um, in 2014, which is, there's three, there's there's Godzilla, and there are the two sort of spin-off um, original creations, which they call Mutos, which are basically big uh, uh, bugs. Um, and I came away just like floored all over again, both for how it stands up in an era where special effects are advancing every year, and yet a movie from 2014 I think feels just as uh, impressive, if not more so now in in the way it understood how to convey a very specific version of Godzilla, which harkens back to um, the original Gojira, the original Japanese film. I think Godzilla in popular culture now is thought of as kind of, it's a man in a suit. It's it's a joke. It's basically like you're watching a bunch of humans do inane things so you can get to the what ultimately is actually like 10 minutes of fighting in those movies if you actually go back and watch them. Mm-hmm. Um very, very goofy, very wrestling, um, and that that betrays uh, by the by virtue of becoming a franchise, they had to leave that stuff behind. Horror movies do this all the time. When it stops being scary, you lean into humor and absurdity. And the original Gojira is a really, even now, holds up. There's a Criterion version of it that is well worth getting. It's it's a, a, a terrific collection of that film. Watching it now, it is still like a deep terrifying meditation on like Godzilla being this reaction to uh, Hiroshima and and World War II. Um, And this movie takes a different tact of of the 2014 of if a thing, you know, instead of it being a result of nuclear testing, 
the nuclear testing it is revealed was actually to try and kill it. And this is just an ancient race of enormous sky-filling creatures that once ruled the Earth. And that movie treats that seriously to the degree of wanting to... What, what would that scale be like to see something that monstrous, that enormous? Um, and I think it was really successful. And so, in conclusion, my, my takeaway was just a greater... Such a great appreciation for what that movie accomplished because I think it's misunderstood... Um, People wanted something else for that movie. They wanted monsters fighting. And the moments when that movie delivers it, I think, are spectacular and are more spectacular because it is so restrained. Um, and I love it. I think I think it's genuinely a masterpiece in that genre of film. Danielle, I'm curious what where, where you're at with this movie and, sure. and where you're at with, like, Gareth Edwards more generally. Uh, well, that's actually a good question, and I'll need to open another tab uh, to look at So he directed, most recently, Rogue One. Um, okay. Um, which, which also like really has like liked. a okay. Yeah, you, to like a you know reductive. But also was like, famously taken off that, and sort of because the, yeah, I guess like Lucas felt it was too dark. Um, right, and um, so Tony Gilroy ended right. up. Uh, there's a debate about how much of Rogue One is Edwards. Like to me, it still feels like you can feel his like hand on it, but also it does feel like a Tony Gilroy movie. So it, feel, it yeah, like the I think what remains in Rogue One is that sense of the camera. Yeah. Even even in the the final battle of Rogue One, which is completely shot by Gilroy, I believe, and not by Edwards, um, it still feels like grounded and human, and tries to, like there are shots of like you know the the, the, the you know the giant empire uh, yeah. uh, 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 you know walkers and stuff like that, where it's like that's what Edwards is often going for mm-hmm. is trying to convey scale. And before that, he got the Godzilla um, gig, which was his first major movie um, after a movie called Monsters, Monsters. which is, is right. really really good. It's a it's about a world in which uh, I forget the mythology, but I believe it's like alien creatures. No, sort it's, of, it's actually it? really fascinating. So it's a Danielle. Did you ever see this one? Because it seems like a you movie. No, and now I'm I'm upset that okay. I haven't. Oh, you should. It has one of <laughs> those this, beautiful beautiful endings you will ever see in like a really just profound like yeah. aha kind of it ending. It, you you would love it. I think. Yeah, this yeah, looks like my shit. A hundred percent. Look at this. But I yeah, forget the general super setup. indie. Uh, okay. And so it's it ends up being kind of a movie about uh, anxieties about uh, Latin America and the U.S. border, mm. uh, but okay. told more from a uh, like Latin American and Central America's perspective of like trying to make the journey out of. So the, well, it's the like the Mexican is, border has actually been like walled off, right? Yeah, like the monster, the monsters that I've. Again, I forget like the instigating incident, but the the mon- these like sort of towering creatures that aren't quite kaiju or like Godzilla size, but are like a skyscraper sized yeah. a creature. They just sort of like have been contained to different zones across the and like the status right. quo is is now just they exist and we just don't go to these areas anymore and the monsters own them. Um, but the the funny thing is, it's basically a road trip movie. About uh, this this pair of characters, like a reporter and like a rich heiress, it's like a bit like uh, it happened one night, uh, but with Great. kaiju, I Great. suppose. Uh, okay. But yeah, basically, it's all like low budget. Uh, you know, it's there. The basically, is is no budget. The the CG he did the special effects crude. himself on his yeah. own computer. He did the cinematography so too, which is amazing. Yeah, written, directed, and cinematography. That's like. Whew. It's a lot. It's a yeah, lot of so roles. like it's it's a fascinating it, it's a fascinating film, uh, and it does make me wonder. Like to me, it feels like that you can see how 
that director ends up making a, a film like Godzilla and why that might not agree with what, why people might be disappointed in that. Uh, but, but Danielle, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm curious then, like if we, if we sort of like just focus in on this movie, yeah. uh, like what's your, what, what's your reaction to it? How did, how did you feel about it at the time? And as you consider it, like from this vantage of distance, uh, where are you at with it? Absolutely. I actually only saw it for the first time the other night, uh, this weekend or not even this weekend. My God, it was like two days ago. Okay, cool. Now we're here. <laughs> I saw it on Monday, uh, Monday night. I was a bit mixed on it, to be honest. Um, I actually loved everything with Godzilla and the Mutos, which are, uh, it's like massive terrestrial something organism. I don't even remember what the U is. Yeah, uh, unidentified, I, I guess. Yeah, massive unidentified terrestrial organisms. I really, really, uh, I agree in terms of the sense of scale and the sense of, of something alien and something wondrous and something kind of incredible with that. And I liked a lot of the character actors in this movie. I, I thought Brian Cranston was a joy, a delight to behold. However, the thing that actually, there were two things uh, that kept me from fully immersing myself. And one was, I think, the main character, Ford, was really wooden. Like, really, really wooden in a way that it was like, Oh, fuck. If this were just Cranston the whole way, we'd have no problems. Everything would be great. Uh, and, and, and piggybacking off of Ford, uh, I could believe that there were massive creatures, that there were massive, you know, giant monsters. Uh, I could not believe that a military family could afford a massive apartment in San Francisco. That was like completely, <laughs> utterly the one thing I couldn't believe in this movie, unless they were very independently wealthy or Elizabeth Olsen was like a specialist surgeon of some sort, which is, yeah, that, it, that's one of those details that just got me. And like, I'm, I'm being funny, but like, or maybe I'm not being funny, but I'm trying to be funny. Uh, but it, it completely was just like, man, what, how the fuck, like for 10 solid minutes, I was sitting there like, how the fuck could they possibly well, afford this? I, I think this is a problem with movies right now yes. is you want to use like really well-known locations, but normal people can't afford to live there anymore. They really can't. And so yeah. it's it's like, because uh, it, the alternative is, and I think this is another movie that sort of looms large over Godzilla, you go the Cloverfield direction. Sure. Where it's a bunch of like yuppie shitheads uh, who like, of course they can afford to live there. Uh, but they also seem like they're hard characters to empathize with in some ways because they are very much like, uh, I don't know, what's what, what's the way to put it? Um, they very much seem like figures like pulled straight out of like really aspirational marketing. Completely, uh, but, yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think you, you end up in a weird place where you have things like, you know, Godzilla kind of taking this tack of eh, just a normal American family. Uh, you know, guys home from his tour to his house in San Francisco his massive in 2014. <laughs> yeah, it's just, I couldn't. She could have been a surgeon. But she could have been a specialist. Maybe they got a wicked settlement, too, out of the deal. Well, but, yeah. Yeah, it yeah. really, I, the, real, the real problem here for me is Ford. Uh, he just... Yeah. Uh, I don't even remember the actor's name. I don't want to throw the actor under the bus, but Aaron Aaron Taylor Johnson, aka the shittier Quicksilver um, that is gotcha. in the MCU. All right, gotcha. That that person, he just he had a lot of work to do uh, to make it all kind of make sense. And I feel like everybody else was actually pretty great. Ken Ken Watanabe was amazing. Brian Cranston was amazing. Even Julia Binoche was incredible, like in the the small amount, but like. 
this guy, so much was resting on this man's incapable shoulders to actually make the sort of emotional journey that we had to take. And I just, mm. He does a really unfortunate um, Gosling-esque uh, take yeah. on reacting to the things he's saying, which is to say he consistently sort of underreacts and just watches. Yeah. And to a degree, I think like I get where that direction comes from in this film because so much about this film is watching people react to what they are seeing, right? This is how we get the sense of scale. Yes. It is about what does it look like from the human scale when you realize these like uh, massive, like biblical scale events are happening around you. Uh, but I think in his case, a lot of it just ends up, he does, I think wooden is the exact word. There's just so many scenes where repeatedly they have him sort of up against it and possibly like staring his own death in the face. And there's just nothing there. There's the, you, yeah. it's, it's just so hard to like invest yourself in the scene with him. Uh, whereas like you're kind of living and dying with Cranston in, in all his scenes. Oh, I rewatched that movie and I found me and my wife tearing up. He managed to sell his relationship with his wife. I mean, I'm not, you know, saying like, I don't want to overstate the case, but like he managed to like sell like what was happening, like a long, like a long unshown history with his family in the, the scene where he watches his wife die early in the film. Yeah. And yeah, it only makes it like all the more frustrating in the back half of the movie to be like, boy, like for an audience surrogate character who is supposed to do the Spielberg awe shot, you know, Spielberg didn't invent the reaction shot, but he popularized like the notion of like a camera fixated on someone seeing something uh, alien, you know, majestic in front of them in, in the 80s with uh, Close Encounters and E.T. and stuff like that. And that's a lot of what is in a film like this. And Cranston's the kind of actor that can, like sell a Richard it. Dreyfus, like can fucking sell you <laughs> on that um, when you're dealing with like such a spectacular premise. Like it's it's less the, it's often less the plotting. You notice bad plot when like, like uh, you know, bad acting, bad characterization, like takes you out of it because then you start looking towards other things that also don't work to explain why you're not in it. And it's like, yeah, this, the primal scream that Cranston has as his wife is dying is that's what you want and need throughout the rest of the film to really like have yeah. sold it as like a complete package. Yeah, I also love that this movie just opens. This is such a cool movie because like basically. It does several riffs on different, like, monstrous or horror conceits, right? Like, it opens on this period piece. Like, it's very China Syndrome, the way it opens. Like, the old, like, nuclear plant control room. And uh, you're kind of, like, you you know, for me, it's disorienting watching the movie because, like, going into it the first time, I knew the movie was sort of modern day. So what are we doing back in, like, 80s Japan? Right. Uh, but it's... <laughs> It's a cool sequence where uh, something is going wrong in the reactor and there's the classic, like, can his wife escape uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the reactor chambers uh, beneath the plant. And, and somebody you know, falls, obviously. of course, you know. Yeah. yeah, and there's the whole, like, moment at the airlock. Uh, and it's, it's really terrific. And then we get to the, um, you know, I and there's a bit of, like, almost... Chernobyl-esque like disaster porn that follows where you know we flash forward years and he hasn't let this go and he's convincing his son to go back into this exclusion zone uh, to like unearth further evidence of like what really happened because he's been sort of written off as a crank uh, you know somebody who is not to be taken seriously or listened to about what happened that original incident and I love that they're immediately pulled into this uh, very 
classic setup where, you know, you've got kind of the arrogant scientists who have no idea what they're what they're playing around with. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there's this idea like they find this monster and they're like, let's just fuck with it and see what happens. <laughs> and yeah. I think and it's so weird to me that the, there's because uh, you're right, Patrick, there were uh, it comes up a lot about how little you see the monsters in this movie. And I'm like, are there people sit- seriously sitting there with a stopwatch? And unless you see like full frontal monster action happening, it like doesn't count. Cause like yeah, no, so this, much, this was a huge, I mean, I'm, I'm dead serious that like, that was like a big thing after this film came out where I walked out of it and being like, holy shit. Like I didn't, I didn't know it was possible to bring like this sort of gravitas to this creature. Like that's so well known. Like, I just I was blown away by what what it, what it did accomplish, even if it's far from a perfect film. And then immediately, like the online discussion is like, like eleven minutes, forty two seconds. Like, Jesus what did I buy Christ. my ticket for? And yeah. and I and I think that's the result of the what Godzilla became as a pop culture icon versus what Godzilla or Gojira, the original film, represents and what it was intended to be, which is like a, a, a meditation on like human disaster, human failure, and, you know, the, the the results of the consequences of human action. And instead, Godzilla's like, you think the TV commercial where, like, got Bar- Charles Barkley dunks on Godzilla and he's a big <laughs> green monster that shoots, you know, uh, uh, atomic breath. And, like, that's the the popular icon of, of Godzilla. And I think this movie was, like, purposely attempting to say, like, actually, I think we've, for- you know, we've forgotten what Godzilla originally represents like what if you start from there and also you know because in the original Gajira like he doesn't you know the the creature doesn't fight another monster right like that is introduced later to give the series something to do um and this one you know tries to like meet it halfway um and I, I think accomplishes that I think I think it's but I think part of the reason it's the stopwatch is what I was mentioning before is like because like post Brian Cranston, the human stuff falls really flat. Even at just a basic acting level, yeah. right? Like it's not even like Cranston is necessarily dealing with like an incredible plotting or character arc. He just sells you on what he believes. Yeah. And you're you're willing to go on, you're at least willing to suspend it. It's not that you believe it, but you suspend the disbelief. And it becomes tougher to suspend the disbelief when you're in the character moments um later on that I think people started focusing on that more. Um, on the lack of Godzilla because it's like, all right, well, every moment we spend with this, it's like, it is a cool shot when, like, you see Godzilla and the Mudo fighting and then it pans over beautifully to the characters. And the reason that frustration builds is because, well, I don't want to spend time with these characters. It was a cool-ass shot. (laughs) But, like, like, go push that back to the left. Um, (laughs) Even though I think the movie, and and a movie like King of the Monsters, the sequel, not to get too far down that road, part of what that movie misfires is because it does like do a little more of the, oh yeah, push that camera back. And it turns out like, I think this movie's less is more um, to to a really great degree. There's an aspect of this that has to be, if I could shit a little bit on the sort of the the fanboy response or the sort of like, you know, uh, cinema sins or, or whatever sort of aspect of what watching nerdy movies is. And like, oh, we're here for the action. We're here for only, you know, the coolest action, the coolest special effects, that sort of thing. As opposed to like, 
Yeah, this this is a little bit more of a meditation, I think, on uh, environmental uh, disaster and and the sort of thing. Like if the nineteen fifty four version was a meditation on what it is to create a weapon of mass destruction and what that does to a people, like to a a community of human beings, then this one is very much about you know, oh uh, shit, the world's going to end in twenty fifty, and we need to fucking do something about it. And oh, here here we have to deal with this shit right now. Right It'll here. just reclaim us like that, you know, exactly. we're ult- you know, ultimately like and, you know, it's funny to have watched Game of Thrones. I'm not going to sit and spoil too much of that, but yeah, to watch funny. the conclusion of the environmentalism uh, uh, arc of Game of Thrones and oh. how that just <laughs> d- didn't it didn't go anywhere. Like, mm-hmm. it's not a spoiler to say that it was not a satisfying conclusion to like a really interesting idea for what like. The, the ideas that that story was playing with, like that's what's happening here. To like, I, and I think that's where, you know, this is much more like Gojira is a horror film, and I think Godzilla is attempting to leverage elements of horror in a same a same way where you are supposed to be, you don't get off your seat and cheer for Godzilla, you sit back in your seat and grip, it, like the, the the sequence that I think, yeah. uh, like like the scene where uh, the bridge scene. Um, where Godzilla arrives in San Francisco, like gives me goosebumps even thinking of it, like the specific shots, like the way, like the camera doesn't give you a full sense of the scale. Um, like, cause so many other monster films are deal with like kaiju-esque imagery. It's like, yeah, give it that big ass wide shot. And it's like, just put in some skyscrapers. And it's like this movie, like it's down with the kids and you don't really care about the kid, but like the camera cares about the kid and just the, the, the way they sell, especially if you've been on... Uh, that bridge in San Francisco or just on a bridge in general, you get immediately, there are visual representations of just like how massive this thing is. And it just doesn't care about you. Yeah. It is just indifferent, which is what makes the human stuff so frustrating later because it becomes so preposterous that like the humans and Kaiju are, uh, you know, or the Titans, I guess, as this movie calls them are bouncing off one another or like relying on one another. And what makes the first two thirds of the movie so terrifying is the massive indifference and that's how it plays into the ecological message where it's like actually the humans can do whatever the fuck they want but you you know it's it's coming and the best you can do is just to get out of the way there's this i noticed it more this time um so in that first scene where they're trying to awaken the muto one of the things i really love is the muto is like restrained by all these like steel cables right but the way the entire scene is shot is they keep framing like they keep putting frames within frames like they keep even in terms of framing the monster is continually boxed in so a lot of times like you will like have a uh like a rack focus shot where you lose the background and you focus in now on a security monitor that is showing the pit where the muto is being awakened and like all hell is breaking loose. And so much of this movie is about like just moving that scale steadily up and out uh, where that first sequence is all just like kind of we're looking at through security monitors. We're looking at it through the eyes of like, Firemen and security guards trying to arrive to deal with the situation and realizing they can't. Um, there's that incredible well, implied imagery, right? Like yeah. it's rather it's like it's it reminded me a lot of the opening scene to Jurassic Park. Sure. When you have the first interaction yeah. with the Velociraptor in the cage, where like as a kid, the the payoff to when you finally see the raptors is so much more terrifying and earned. Because you've spent an hour in the movie wondering what the fuck that thing could do to you because the, the camera never shows you what happens to that guy in the cage. Mm-hmm. But boy, like 12-year-old Patrick had some <laughs> fucked up ideas about what happened to that guy in the cage. And like that's a lot of like 
you know, Edwards has said he's like, you know, deeply influenced by Spielberg. And like you see a lot of in this movie, you fe- you see a lot of 70s, 80s Spielberg and how it, it, it treats um, uh, uh, the creature um, with a certain respect. Um, and and I, th- I thought a lot of that initial raptor cage scene and just how it always is framing uh, or setting up the, the later framing of the creatures. There's a fair bit of alien in there as well with a lot of the suits and mm-hmm. sort of the very beginning in, in the. I think it's in the Philippines, right? Uh, the sort of early cave scene. They sort of fly in, and then there's that sort of oh, cave Oh, yeah, scene. when they find, like, the, the, the cave with yeah. the big skeleton and stuff like that. They've got yeah. the suits. They've got the lights. They're, they're sort of walking around in this sort of alien atmosphere. There was, there was a whole bunch of that, and I, that seemed, like, really deliberate and really well done, uh, sort of where some of those little pastiches are coming from in here. Damn, I'm curious, though, because I also had that thought. But the other thing, I think another weakness of this movie and you see it a lot now, is so many movies are kind of made with, like, the tacit cooperation of, like, the U.S. military. Sure. <laughs> and so the thing is, so it's interesting to me, because the alien, I think of aliens, and aliens is explicitly about how our vaunted military with its technological supremacy is kind of brain dead, yep. right? Like, that, like, technology leads to hubris, and hubris leads to catastrophic stupidity. And so you get Aliens, which is basically about, hey, let's watch. It's, you know, like Predator. It's like, hey, let's let's watch the, the, the cream of the military crop just get demolished. And let's also find out they're actually not that good. They're not as, they're not as hard as they think they are. Uh, yeah. They're used to winning unfair fights on the back of technology. <laughs> and here, uh, I think there's a bit of that because everything the military does is like laughably ineffective Uh, but at the same time I don't think you get to that it feels to me like the movie suffers a little bit from still basically being like and the troops helped too Yep, and it's uh, to me it feels like a weird tension because the military has to be completely ineffective and helpless but also like good yeah part of the problem is Ford uh, and him being everywhere all the time being the coolest most badass uh, military man ever even though it's not even his unit that he ends up hanging out with. And like, he doesn't even go here. Yeah, he doesn't even go here. What the fuck? And poor Sergeant <laughs> Morales just has to be like everybody's like little like gopher all the time. And it's his actual unit. I don't know. I was a little mad about that. But anyway, like part of it is Ford that he's like magical military man. And he's the most boring guy to look at ever. And that kind of just... I mean, I suppose you could go loop all the way around after that and be like, no, really, this is a very deep commentary on how useless the military is because this cool military man is so boring and actually kind of useless and just fails upwards the whole time. But I don't think that the movie's actually doing that work <laughs> to do that. And part of it is that the the uh, the admiral is he an admiral? Strahan. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He actually does a really good job being like stern but fair dad. Which like sells that vision of like military might a little bit, where he's like, "All I care about is protecting our citizens." Like he he's very like, "Oh, this is exactly <laughs> that that vision of like the good military man," you know, like, "Oh, the good dad who who cares very deeply." Uh, so it really does kind of mix things up a little bit. And I no, think it does it, culminate so on really him basically. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No, no. It, like Strahan's great. Like this is like there are a lot. There are character actors you hire to basically, and Watanabe is another one of them. But there are character Absolutely. actors you hire to like in the wrong hands. These small lines will read read as absurd, right? Like let them fight. Absolutely. 
Oh, it's Couldn't so go good wrong. though. Yeah, you you just like fight. that's what that is one of a few moments where you were like, I got, I was, I was on my couch like, yes, let's go. <laughs> okay, so, uh, yeah, the, but I do love that Strayhorn's basic plan is basically like, well, I'm out of fucking ideas, so sure, <laughs> I must protect America by just letting these monsters just trash downtown San Francisco. <laughs> yep. uh, Boy, but, would you love the sequel to this film, Rob? If you enjoyed that logic, <laughs> good. So. No, I'm I'm actually really excited to see the sequel, but I gotta watch uh, Skull Island anyway. Um, but just a quick shout out, by the way. I also love the train sequence. I love how it slows yes. the movie down, and there's sort of this long like journey via rail, and then it culminates in that like really eerie uh, sequence at night. Um, again, this movie uses obscures action in really useful ways. Yeah. I think the night sequence is brilliant because you actually see very little. Um, you get a fleeting glimpse of the monster and the humans are literally beneath its notice. The Muto does not like even pay attention to them. They're sitting Doesn't there with flashlights it's, it's interested in the train and getting the, the snack. The new, There's a delicious so it can, snack so it can on eat. there. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, that's shot that where like uh, 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 the, the, the Muto appears like out of the mountain like, and it's just one of those, like, fuck, like, when you see a director that understands, often darkness is used to, as a budgeting measure in order to just, like, ah, just, this CG's expensive. And in, in here, even if that's the case, it's someone like Edwards understanding, okay, what could be a weakness could be, can now be used as a strength if we shoot it and set it up the right way. And that way that Mudo appears is just, like, unbelievably good. Yeah. Um, I think... The, the where the movie just like I for me it enters the stratosphere though is the way it does two things after the let them fight sequence where the fight begins in San Francisco and we get it all very human scale it's witnessed through the eyes of bystanders particularly through uh, Elizabeth Olsen's uh, character's eyes as you're seeing the fight begin and it's all very uh, you know handheld camera look and you're panning and everything it's you see the monsters fighting just above the like line of buildings so it's all obscured you're getting fleeting glimpses but also that shot ends with sudden awareness that now you're back in the subway tunnel and the sort of security doors are swinging shut as oh, everyone takes shelter yeah yeah and then you go from that and the movie's like all right done with the uh you know normal mundane human scale of this <laughs> now it's time for opera and we go to the halo jump sequence it's one of the most oh my god rob one of the, go watch uh if you don't want to watch this movie go look up the, the the original trailer for this film which is essentially just the the halo jump sequence if you want to get a sense of like the scene of the movie because I, I think it's one of the most like thrilling scary scale inducing sequences i've ever seen committed to film like i, I feel like pretty confident saying that it's just got this nightmarish, uh, like, score going behind it, too. Yes. Uh, very, like, just like if you, took, if you took a sample from Holst and just turned it into, like, a drone uh, track is kind of how it comes across. It's just this, like, eerie, like, building crescendoing wail uh, as these characters are flying in this, uh, like, cargo plane doing one of those high-altitude uh Drops. Does it make any sense? Probably not. I don't give a shit. Uh, because what we get is the cargo door opens yeah. and they're just bathed in that like lurid red light from sunset and then they jump down into 
uh, this like supercell above San Francisco and you see them falling through the cloud cover and it is just utterly terrifying. It keeps going. The shot keeps going until we get his POV as he's falling through the sky on the monster fight. And so they're getting like, they start out kind of far away and you're looking at it from up above and then they get bigger and bigger and then they're above you and you're back to the human scale. It's just such an incredible sequence. And for me, that was the point where I was like, why didn't everyone just love this film? Like, how, like, <laughs> like how could you not get it? Because the I, highs yeah. are so high, right? Like, that's that's my take on it, is that I don't disagree with a lot of the criticisms of the film, but the moments that work are, like, so worth all of it that, like, yeah, that Halo sequence alone is just worth sitting for two hours. Especially because it's a mo- that's after most of these films pull back the camera, you get the full scale, and it's just going to be, like, a third-person action video game at that point where it's like, all right, I got to watch them bash each other in the, in the... And it's the movie still does bits like that, but it it takes the time. It is smart enough to realize uh, you've seen them at full scale, how they're normally shown, but we're going to do one sequence that, like, reestablishes just how big and, like, terrifying and how stupid this plan is. <laughs> on Like, it's it underscores how futile... Like usually when the, the 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 human characters have these bad ideas, you're supposed to laugh at it, and there's never any commentary how bad it is. It's just accepted that that's just how these movies go, how these stories go. And I'm not I don't want to oversell what the script is doing, but I do think the cinematography allows the movie to in some ways be commenting on like how futile all of this is. And it's like of course you got to do something, but boy, this sure seems goofy and bad. And there at least is one line. Um, from from the general where he's like, good luck on the jump because a bunch of you are just going to hit buildings because we don't know where they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, completely. I, there was a very 2001-esque uh, sort of sense about the music and the tone and the eeriness and the weirdness. Something that also sort of sold the horror aspect of this for me was I, I actually felt a sort of uh, – maybe this is somewhat unintentional or maybe it was just that the animation – struck for me but I actually kind of felt for the creatures like all of the creatures yes. I actually yes. oh, felt yeah, I actually felt for the the mommy Muto when her eggs were burnt I actually was like very upset I was oh my god those are her babies like there was a real sense of like animal behavior and logic to the way they acted that wasn't it wasn't evil they weren't creatures who like just want to fuck up your city. It's just a thing that's there. It's as if we're just in a jungle and we're a shitty tree. Like, they don't care. They're just doing their thing. They mated. They had a, a, a delightful experience. And then there are these <laughs> these babies. And, like, the babies got burnt. And I I seriously, like, welled up a little bit. I was just like, oh, my God. How, how horrifying. How, like... It, sad and like enormous and and primal this sort of uh, vibe was and it really sort of sold the horror for me in this whole see I I just want to call it like the red sequence like the whole red tinted portion of the movie for sure I love that moment where and it's the it's the one time the humans end up kind of accidentally falling backwards into working with Godzilla because he's (laughs) getting wrecked by fighting two of them at once and right. it is the detonate. It is the destruction of the nest uh, that sort of distracts them long enough for Godzilla to, uh, you know, go super cyan. Um, <laughs> yeah. But 
it is like it is such an effective moment when the when the uh, the 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 mom Muto like leans her head into the nest and sees they're all gone and like screams, and it is this realization. I think without that, you don't get the the point that this is a movie about nature. This is a movie about like ev- like everyone on the planet, every being on this planet, like wants to live, right? Like right. that. That they're like these are also creatures in some ways like us and have similar drives, and they do feel loss. Um, and that also sets up one of my favorite moments, which is it's kind of inversion of the sequence in the train, where this time the muto just bypasses the marines completely and ignores them. This time, it notices, and it looks at uh, Ford. And it is the, it's just this great moment of, okay, you've got the God's attention now. <laughs> and it's just this incredible sequence where, like, this entire movie, these monsters have been finding completely oblivious to the humans around them. And after that nest is destroyed, suddenly the Muto is very much like, yeah, yeah, Godzilla, I'll deal with him later. Where'd that little fucker go? <laughs> yep. <laughs> this annoying bug. Just yeah. killed my babies. This vicious little bug. Yeah. I got to I got to kill it. Um yeah, and then Godzilla comes in and he's about to get like, you know, killed by the Muto and uh just the way that the sudden like the wash of like white light that you have no idea what is happening <laughs> and then you see like the electro tail uh appearing out of the mist. It's incredible. Yeah. And I will say like a lot of it sells all this stuff and we haven't really I touched on it too much at this point. I just want to make sure and, and underscore it is like part of what makes the cinematography work is also like the exceptional sound design. Mm-hmm. Like this movie has, uh, I'm not a big audiophile, not a big, but like this movie like so benefits from an extraordinary sound system being listened to loud and being, it's a sound design that asks, uh, de- demands to be paid attention to because most of that stuff is so incidental in a lot of blockbuster films. But in this movie, like, the sound is such a character. It, it is used yeah. with great emphasis to sell the, you know, the the empathy, the empathy you can build for the empathy that all the emotions that you run with the creatures, whether it's being terrified or whether it's empathy. Like, the scream that that uh, Mudo has, like, you buy it, and it's also terrifying because, like, in there is, like, something primal. You feel bad for it, but also, like, that thing is going to fuck me up if I don't get out of the way. And, you know, I, I love Godzilla's roar in, in this movie. It is just, it is, it feels very primal and beastly in a way that, um, the scream from the, from Gojira and the, and the, the, the other Toho films is, is maybe it was scary at the time. And with like, as by virtue of pop culture icon, it becomes flattened in a way that is not the, the sound's fault, but the way it reestablishes like a, a growl, like just, just go look up Godzilla's roar on YouTube and just like li- like feel like the bass as like it's just so finely tuned in a way that um, that was another part of the movie that I appreciated so much more on the second viewing because a lot of Danielle's totally rightful criticisms of like the things you get hung up on like where they live in San Francisco <laughs> and how can they afford that it's like once you've once you understand the movie's like strengths and its goals and like what it's really aiming for. And you can hone in and better appreciate that stuff. That's when, like, it went from, like, a movie I, I, I liked a lot when I saw it to just, like, a master class on second viewing was noticing things like the sound design where it's just like, oh, I something that's usually an afterthought 
or is just like a, a checkbox. Not that those people don't work hard on things that you checkbox in a $300 million movie. But in this movie, it's such a high priority, and I think it pays off spectacularly. Yeah, it's it's a movie that I think is useful to – is it useful, like, point of comparison to the way a lot of, like, CG-heavy uh, action movies end up looking where there's a lot of, like – sound and fury and there's a lot of like moving imagery but it doesn't really like nothing registers nothing like so little stands out right this is the criticism of a lot of like marvel uh you know culminating action sequences they are just uh cgi bonanzas but it's all curiously weightless and just kind of washes off of you uh, but those movies have i if i may feel free to disagree plenty of people do those movies are live and die by the characters yes. right and so it's like the action sequences are almost perfunctory they are they are in some ways exposition for um, or just a, a means to an end, which is to get to character moments. You know, a movie like Endgame has fighting, but what I cried over was like not the you know the blast out of Iron Man's arm cannon. Um, yeah. And so like this this movie is is an inversion of that in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but it it does end up being this real showpiece of like how the all these other crafts can really like amplify the effect and meaning of of a movie uh so yeah i mean like for me this is like i absolutely love this movie uh i loved it the first time i loved revisiting it um i just like i hope gareth edwards gets let, let out of movie jail um it sounds actually jail? more like oh no it's uh reading between the lines it sounds like more he was like traumatized by the experience of making star wars and so less movie jail and more like like he was supposed to do the sequel to Godzilla. Like he had signed up where he was because like it's been, you know, five years. That's a long ass time in between like sequels to like popular franchise movies. And he had Godzilla was such it was, a, it was a modest hit, but like it was such a visual spectacle that like as they were staffing up Star Wars, he became like an easy pickup. And so he signed on for Rogue One and the thought was like, all right. He was supposed to do the Godzilla sequel, but like he'll go do Star Wars, mm. he'll come back. And after Star Wars, when the Tony Gilroy stuff, uh, when that movie kind of went a little off the rails towards the end of production, he like pulled himself back and was just like, I don't, I cannot do another spectacle movie. I'm not going to do the next uh, Godzilla. And so I think it's more of that dude like took his money and was like, I need to go recharge. But it's such a bummer because especially... King of the Monsters, the new Godzilla film. And I, I like Michael Doherty, the director-writer. He did a movie called Trick or Treat, uh, which mm. I think is a great, yeah. one of the great horror anthology films. Um, his follow-up to that, Krampus, which is just such a fun, delightful uh, <laughs> horror B-movie with a, a great uh, uh, interpretation of Krampus. Um, he struggles in the sequel to... the King of the Monsters turns into more of a, a Toho sequel classic in which like the story makes no sense and character motivations have no meaning and it's goofy and it it's not quite a celebration of that because it's also cribbing the aesthetic of the original film which is like treating these as like nightmarish creatures to be respected and the movie is dead like well but what if we had that but also like they were toys and we hit them uh which is fine like i love those godzilla movies too um i just i i i'm I weep for the non-existent Gareth Edwards sequel and hope he comes back to making films again because you just watch a movie like that and go, oh, like 
you can't just replace that level of eye. And he's just someone that to blockbuster filmmaking is just able to put you there in a way that a lot of other filmmakers really just don't understand how to do. Yeah. Um, for, for me, I, I think this, this movie sort of underscores uh, why I hope he can get more shots at, at making movies like this. Cause uh, I, I think he has an incredible, uh, an incredible eye for telling these stories. Um, I'm, I'm bummed to hear that uh, King of the Monsters doesn't quite stack up. Uh, I've, it's, it's just, a, it's like a movie you should just go into with like radically shifted expectations. Yeah. Like, because the trailers, I only watched the first one because I was like, all right, this movie is a spectacle film. I don't need to watch more than the first trailer. Otherwise I'm just having shots spoiled for me. And the first trailer for King of the Monsters is um, spectacular. It's, it's it, almost as good as like the original Godzilla uh, trailers in has his, his beautiful music. All the shots are like the best shots in the movie where it treats the creatures yeah. as majestic and interesting and, and wondrous. Um, and the movie itself is just bleh, um, yeah. in, in a way where like the things that, the things that are frustrating in this film that don't work are just all the way at the front. Um, um, and the, the monster fighting while occasionally spectacular is largely, it, it feels like you're watching a, like you see the CG mm-hmm. in a way that Edwards is Godzilla. You, I mean, you know, intellectually it's, it's computer generated, but it's, it, it helps you suspend the disbelief in a way that like, it's okay. And that it wouldn't, yeah. if they, if you put people in suits, it wouldn't be nearly as spectacular. Although I do want to see, everyone keeps telling me, uh, and maybe we could revisit it sometime is uh, Shin Godzilla. Shin Godzilla. Yeah. I was actually going to bring that up. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, as the last Toho produced, um, basically when this Godzilla universe started, they basically entered into an agreement where they wouldn't make Godzilla films to like this sort of like finished out. And the last one they made in between Godzilla and Godzilla King of the Monsters was uh, the, the director of Evangelion, whose name escapes me. Did, Rob, do you know? Oh, God, no. Uh, okay, all right. Sorry, let's Austin. Let's take a look. Kato? Kato? No one? There you go. I, I don't know what he said. But, I don't know what he said either. But he's uh, Kato said it, even if the mic didn't pick it up. Yeah, hit, anyway, so he directed... Hideaki? Hideaki. Hideaki Anno. Okay, yes. Uh, you know, well-known as the director uh, of, of Evangelion, did Shin Godzilla, a movie that is, like, uh, supposed to be about um, the bu- la- like bureaucratic nightmare yes. response to um, the tsunami um, and uh, is really like a movie about bureaucracy and the failures of, of government and apparently has some really grotesque, yes. disgusting takes on Godzilla going from, like, a small baby to, like, fully formed thing and also yeah. embraces the man-in-suit roots yeah. and, like, has a man in suit aided by CG. And I just, I don't know why I haven't seen it yet. It's but fascinating. I, I it's, haven't it's, seen it? I know. I, well, so for a long time, it didn't come out. I missed it in theaters. Right. And then it got delayed coming out on digital due to, like, weird rights stuff for, like, 18 months. And so then I just, it just, like, left my consciousness. Because um, I didn't want to pirate it because I didn't want, like, a 1080p version. Like, I wanted to watch, like... A nice Blu-ray of it, so I finally bought it. And Blu-ray so is watch. I will say the right, but like there's a difference between <laughs> streaming 1080p and getting that off a disc, Rob. Okay, but if it's a downloaded file, it's not a stream. It's Danielle. Did you see the movie? I so what <laughs> happened was my friend that I we do movie nights. We watched Godzilla 2014, and she was like, "I just watched Shin Godzilla over the weekend," so she was excited to watch Godzilla 2014, and then she then after we watched 
the movie that we just talked about for an hour, she then spooled up for me a bunch of YouTube videos of the transformations of the creature design itself. Some really grotesque, really fascinating stuff that made the Godzilla from the the this movie, the 2014 movie, uh, but kind of cute <laughs> in comparison. Like it's a cute dog. It's like a cute like German Shepherd kind of thing with on a dinosaur yeah. uh, versus this like. Kato, you'll know. What is the fucked up, not the goldfish looking thing, but the like useless Pokemon that's like shitty. And then it turns into like an Are we awesome talking about Sobble? Gyarados. It turns into Gyarados. <laughs> wow. No, not Sobble. Magikarp. Magikarp. It looks like a fucked up Magikarp that turns into a Gyarados. Yeah. But it's like in mid transition and it does like a, oh my God, it, it like. It, it sort of rears up on its back as it's transforming, so it looks like a fucked up fish thing. Rears up on its back and like wiggles its shitty stubby, like going to be Tyrannosaurus Rex arms, but they're just like shitty stubs. Oh, it's amazing. The animation is incredible. It, much lower budget, much, much, much lower budget, but going for a completely different, like almost zombie movie aesthetic in terms of the the shots. Not not zombies, but do you know what I mean? Like it's it's like colorful yeah. and a little sick and a little gross and a little uh, like grainy, that sort of thing versus this like beautiful majestic palette of the 2014 movie that we were just talking about. Fascinating visually. I got very excited there, but really, really interesting visually. I need to check out Skull Island and uh, Shin Godzilla then to sort Skull of... Island is good because relative to King of the Monsters, it's a movie that so Skull Island goes for like a Vietnam yeah. uh, uh, like aesthetic and is goofy as shit and f- like funnier. John Goodman's in it, and I'll watch anything with him in it. Sure. Um, and uh, it's whereas like King of the Monsters doesn't know what tone it's going for. Like this movie. While not like spectacular, like knows what it wants to do and embraces its like B movie qualities in a way that like I'm let's go like I was on board for so I'd it's so even though it exists in the same world and I I'm curious how they collide those in the movie next year which is coming from Adam Wingard who did that shitty Death Note movie on Netflix and hasn't done a good movie (laughs) since your next. So I'm not terribly confident about it, but I'd be curious what you thought of it, Rob. So we should at least yeah. shout those out in the future as we work our way through them. Uh, speaking of embracing uh, B-movie characteristics, uh, I got one more thing I want to talk to you about, but we will hit that after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, so while I was on vacation, uh, there were at times a lack of things to do, um, and uh, one of my friends that I was hanging out with on vacation introduced me to uh, <laughs> the YouTube channel for the food magazine, uh, Bon Appetit. Yes. And 
Which seemed like a weird thing to like, hey, let's hang on vacation and watch a bunch of Bon Appetit videos. Uh, (laughs) And yet the way this was pitched to me was, oh, it's like culinary giant bomb. And I was like, okay, you got my interest. Uh, And (laughs) I think I can sort of see where that's coming from. There's also a bit of like old school one up. But basically, like I ended up watching a shit ton of these videos uh, that are largely shot out of the uh, test kitchen they have for the magazine uh, at what looks like One World Trade Center. Uh, but they've got this tremendous, like, giant test kitchen where everyone is in there working on recipes and experimenting with stuff for the for the magazine. And they just started shooting videos out of that, uh, sort of trying to showcase the special interests of the various... Uh, editors and uh, testers who are there. And I think one of the things that was immediately useful to me was uh, there is this series called It's Alive, uh, starring Brad Leon. I was talking about this on Twitter the other day. Um, and I think this is maybe where the giant bomb comparisons are most immediate. Uh, Brad Leon comes a bit across as like cooking Dan Reichert in some <laughs> ways. Um, <laughs> like... <laughs> Like, it is, like, at once, like, enormously knowledgeable, but also has, like, surprising gaps in that knowledge that, like, are kind of fascinating to encounter. And a lot of the humor is watching other members of the Bon Appetit team sort of bounce off this character and watching him bounce off of them. But he did the series. uh, In general, his series are about, like, fermentation and, like, live cultures and such in food. But he did the series where he went camping. And it's an interesting thing because it's just him in these videos, but the cameraman is a character, uh, this this guy named Vinny, and a lot of these videos is him just talking at his cameraman and just having conversations as he just like narrates to Vinny, not to the audience, to Vinny, what is happening. Uh, but he ended up like doing the showcase on campfire cooking, uh, which ended up being immediately useful because I did a fair bit of that myself. Uh, and inhaled way too much smoke uh, and uh, still felt pretty rough uh, by the end of uh, end of that vacation, but also uh, kind of triumphant. But they're, they're weird, goofy videos, um, but I think the stuff that I really love from them was uh, this one, Claire Saffitz, does this series, uh, Gourmet Makes, and this is more my shit. It is like reverse engineering popular junk food to figure out how you could make it at home. And so like she started out by like, how the fuck do you make a Twinkie? Like if you were like, cause you can't just make cake and then put cream on it because like you won't, it won't have the structure. It just wouldn't work. So like the Twinkie is this weird, this weird thing that we've all encountered, but how is it actually made? How does it work? How do you make a thing that retains those characteristics and that texture uh, that is also like stable enough to eat? Um, without resorting to, because what you don't have is recourse to all the like advanced, uh, sort of food materials science that Mm -hmm. major snack companies have. And so a lot of gourmet makes is about like getting at the essence of junk food and why it works and why people like it. But then also how do you translate that into real food? Uh, that you can make at home with like ingredients that are familiar. And uh, 
the one video, like I, I shared it with you. I don't know if you had a chance to watch, but there was this video where she tries to figure out like, how the fuck do you make a Dorito? <laughs> and yeah. it seems simple. Cause I always just assume like, okay, it's a type of nacho chip. They just spray down with uh, seasoning. But if you think about it, it's not like a nacho chip at all. And so there's this, like, it's a long video of like her journey into madness, trying to figure out like, you're there in your kitchen. You got all the ingredients you could ask for. You can't make a Dorito to save your life. Because it's, it's spongier. It's almost like a seashell in some ways with like like pockets of. That's the thing. It's the pockets. Wow. I'm just thinking about this now and my mind is is going to galaxy brain on this. This is wild. Well, and that's the appeal. It's every <laughs> video is. And the cool thing is. Uh, it's partly like just watching her sort of scientific method and experimentation as she goes through it. But also it's cool to see like how she does like almost consults with the rest of the staff. Uh, so there's this one dude, Chris Morocco, who is apparently like the, the super taster of the team who just has this uncanny ability to break down just from a single bite of food. Like what all is happening at it from a texture standpoint, from a flavor standpoint. And then, from that, extrapolate, like, well, here's how that was probably encountered, uh, accomplished. And so as she's trying to work on this, she's also bringing in more and more people to try to figure out, like, what what is a Dorito? It, it becomes, it starts <laughs> becoming this really, like, weirdly existential question of, like, what is Dorito? We've all encountered it a million times, but, like, if you start thinking about it, it makes less and less sense. Like, you've zoomed in to the point where, like, the Dorito is lost, and now you are just, like... <laughs> Obsessed with, like, how do you make a corn chip with that many, like, tiny little micro pockets? Yeah. Oh, my God. My mind is seriously, like, blowing yeah. right now. This is incredible. It's that, it's that every video. Uh, and so that was – that ended up being a really fun way to spend a good portion of my break is – uh, watching these videos. And I wouldn't have expected from Bon Appetit because I always consider that kind of a um, – you know, it's Condé Nast publication. It's a really, uh, I, I think it's sort of more old school than, say, like Serious Eats is. Or that's that was always my impression. It's a little glossier. And so it is so funny to see this YouTube series that really does feel like, what if you were just like hanging out in the kitchen with all your friends who are like master chefs and like food <laughs> scientists? Oh, it's so fascinating to me. I, I'm going to, I know I will dive into this and not be able to stop myself. I've recently watched like six seasons straight of The Great British Bake Off. As somebody who doesn't eat a lot of baked goods or bake or anything else, I didn't know where this interest would come from. But there's something about food, the aesthetics and the construction of food that that tickles something in some part of my brain and I cannot quite put my finger on it, but I am well, utterly fascinated by this stuff. <laughs> I think there's an element of a lot of like scientific investigation is completely beyond what our experience is. Like you yeah. can tell me about like the exciting findings of like a, uh, you know, human physiology study or like a, uh, you know, long-term biological study based on like samples of different populations. Like all that stuff, the findings can be interesting, but I can't translate. It doesn't have immediate meaning to me. I'm not sure. familiar enough with the core concepts. I can't, I can't go on that journey uh, with the authors, for instance. It's just the, there's too much specialized knowledge. Cooking is just familiar enough where like 
with my knowledge base, I get what they're driving at roughly and I can follow along, but they're still operating at this much higher level. And so it's this really interesting thing of you get sort of the pleasure of like scientific investigation, uh, but without the necessity for a decade of school. (laughs) And I think that's probably what ends up speaking to me a lot, particularly with the gourmet mix stuff, um, which is just very much about like you take something familiar that you've seen a million times and you ask for the first time, like, what is this? Yes. It's like the glitter thing we talked about almost. Yeah. This really hyper familiar thing that is everywhere. But looking at it from that lens, it's like, holy shit, what really is this at a molecular level? <laughs> or not molecular, but you know what I mean. Like a very yeah. intense investigation. Oh, it's so awesome. Also, it's just cool because it reminds you of like everything you can accomplish with like a good camera operator and editor and like a single like big open space that's meant for the thing you're using it for. Um, just watching that is like really kind of instructive about like in some ways there's a lot of upfront cost doing something like that. But on the other hand, there's something so simple about it. That's just, you know, the skill of the people, uh, and you know, the, 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 uh, videographer, the, the editors and the, the crew and the talent, uh, that really is impressive, uh, that it, it feels so informal and yet so polished. Uh, so I found it, I found it fascinating. I highly endorse it. Uh, if you are, if you are like looking for something maybe a little more serious than like nailed it, um, <laughs> and you've sort of exhausted the Great British, uh, you know, baking show, uh, then I highly recommend like, hey, look up the Bon Appetit videos and just go back. There's clearly a change in the video. I think I think the start of It's Alive is when their YouTube strategy changed. Before that, it's very familiar, like a magazine YouTube page. Sure. Um, but like with It's Alive and then after, they started leaning more and more into uh, like personality-led stuff. And it's really good. And I like it a lot. So I can't wait. <laughs> uh, give it a shot. Everyone should watch it. Um, I am – this is probably ends with me trying to make Twinkies. Just because. You do that at E3, please? Yes. Can you, and film can you try it. and make a Swinkies at E3? Even I couldn't. Just like because cell phone video. Just film that. Watch the video. Amazing. No, I can't. It is so much more. Like, you're like, could you, yeah, Rob, could you do that at E3? And it's like, yes, that is all I could do at E3. Like, <laughs> I, would, like I would spend like half that week being like, mm, sorry, uh, Patrick, you can go to these three appointments because uh, <laughs> I don't know, man, this, this dough is not holding together, not baking up right. Rob's twin key three. Yeah. Right? Oh, nice. Did we do it? Did we get there? Is that an episode uh, title? Yeah, well, we, we sort of got there, but I'm, I think <laughs> Twinkie three could be something. Like I got no, on the way it could there, go wrong. Danielle. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Uh, I, I understand. All right. So <laughs> uh, I think I think that is is where we will leave it. Uh, our thanks to. Two- Wait, Danielle has Danielle has her mini it's shout a out. Pre- I thought shout she was out. holding it. Yeah. Just to get people ready for it. All right. One day. At some point, potentially, we will maybe talk about Tuca and Birdie, an amazing, wonderful animated series by Lisa Hanawalt starring Tiffany Haddish. Haddish? Is it just Haddish or Haddish? Hmm. Good question. I think it's Haddish. Haddish. Tiffany sure. Haddish and Ali Wong as 30-something bird women. It's very BoJack in style, but very, very, very like centered on women's experiences and very much New York versus L.A., which 
All of these things are beautiful. The characters are amazing. And we will talk about it maybe one day. It is a pre- Pre-3? Pre-shout-out. Pre is it as out. crushingly bleak as BoJack? No. Actually, no. Okay, great. I actually found a lot of hope in it, and it's much more about, uh, not to spoil anything, but there's much more about encountering difficult things and trying to heal from them and trying to sort of find healthier ways of dealing with shit than BoJack uh, necessarily does. So, Cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We'll have to check that out, and I'll uh, look forward to circling back on it after E3. Yeah. Uh, that will do it for this week's Waypoints. Our thanks to Too Mellow for the track Slide Asleep off the album After Midnight. You can find that at twomellowmakes.bandcamp.com. You can keep up with all of us at waypoint.vice.com. It'll get you there. I'm Rob Zachney. You can find me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Uh, Patrick, where can people keep up with you online? At Patrick Lovick. Danielle. At Danielle R.I. And if you feel like it, go on uh, Instagram and go to Vice Reports. And you can find our producer at twitter.com slash A underscore Cotto underscore appears. That'll do it for Waypoints. We hope you've enjoyed the break. Uh, please be sure to rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice if it allows such a thing. I like to think we're a five-star podcast, but it's not for me to say. Power's in your hands. Uh, we'll be back again with Waypoint Radio. Well, hmm. Uh... Are we, do we have a Friday Soon? show? <laughs> mm, no, you're going to get five podcasts next week. No, so. I think we do because we're going we're to record something tomorrow, right? Are we? Picado? Probably. Yeah. Oh. Okay, that's a Look, probably. We'll, sure. we'll probably Nailed be it. back Waypoint. again with Waypoint Radio on Friday. <laughs> uh, yeah, just really, really spiked that, that uh, outro. <laughs> uh, until Maybe then, there's a thing. Do not give in to astonishment. Though I guess that's really the opposite meaning from Godzilla 2014, yeah. which is that yeah, it's like actually you should be astonished. <laughs> exactly, give in. <laughs> uh, clap. What yep. the fuck? <laughs> Excuse me, Rob. What happened? Oh, just new browser stuff. Yeah. Uh, uh -huh. I was trying to open the waypoint stock, and every time I opened it, instead of opening it, I think because it was loading all that for the first time in Firefox, every time I tried to like double click on the waypoint stock, uh, just so I could read the boilerplate, uh, instead it was like I got a random spin, and the browser scrolled down to just like deep into my drive folder. Oh. Um, it was weird and disorienting. All right. <laughs> Uh, shall we go on 30? Sure. Yeah, I guess. Just sit here and wait a long time for that number to tick up. <laughs> Did you miss it? No. No, you not. guys were actually just in sync. Yeah, it was in sync, brother. You were okay. I'm sorry that in that 10 seconds you fell asleep and then weren't paying attention, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, oh shit, that's right. I gotta opt out of this shit. Sorry, I just got an email from Chase that's like, you want to agree to binding arbitration, right? And I was like, I sure don't. All right, sorry. It like, it's very Oh, I got that too this morning. Yeah, yeah. I haven't read it. I saw a bunch of bold text that said important. I was like, 
Usually I yeah. would just archive that and just not even pay attention. It's just this was whatever. going around Twitter in the fine, like in the super fine print. Basically, they're like, "Hey, are you cool with for you must mail the- your rejection to us?" Oh, good, thanks, but yeah. I will. Don't you worry. Yeah, just gotta buy Fuck a stamp. <sighs> All right. You know, I have not used the tilt feature on this monitor nearly enough. <laughs> I feel like a king. I'm like looking down into the monitor right now and like, oh man, this view angle is just pristine. All right. Anyway, here we go. Uh-huh. Haven't done this for a week. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Woo! <laughs> wow. Nailed. No. Okay. Uh, all right, Rob, you can go at 45. Nailed it. <laughs> Oh no! All right, think something sad. Deadly class got canceled. <laughs> that was bullshit. Oh. All right. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.